Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert, for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to a doctor, Matt Jordan. We don't, I don't call him that very often, but the, the good doctor is in the house. Matty is a good friend of mine. We've been friends for a number of years now. He's probably one of Canada uh, Canada's uh, really leading uh, sports scientists and strength conditioning practitioners and also just leaders in sport performance. <laughs> Lives out in Calgary, works at the Canadian Sports Centre Calgary and also does some of his own private stuff. And he's been in deep in research, getting his PhD over the last number of years. I know he was happy to get that finished uh, a little while ago. And he's got three boys. So on top of that, he piles it on with uh, with a whole bunch of kids that he's got to manage. <laughs> All of this, he's, he's tremendously accomplished. But beyond that, he's a great, great human being. So welcome, Matt. Thank you for coming. Thank, yeah. Thanks, man. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah. So I'm going to start by, you know, you've, you've, uh, 
spent I'll, I'll let you sort of tell people what you've spent the last little while doing but you you are you know d- have been deep into research and you've done a lot of stuff on really understanding asymmetry and some of the things that go into the causal effects of acl injury and other kinds of injuries and things and that's really a, an area that you're passionate about so tell people why you're passionate about it and what you've been doing and then we'll sort of get unpack that a little bit yeah no sounds good i mean the first um the first thing to say, Scotty, is that, uh, you know, I always consider myself a coach first and, uh, a scientist second. Um, my roots are in coaching. Um, but, but I've always been, uh, super curious about the things that I'm doing to help my athletes and, and ultimately wanting to know whether or not I'm actually making a difference. And when you have that mindset, I think that sort of sets you up for, you know, maybe using science to help, help guide the coaching process a bit more. Um, I also think that, um, you know, the, the things that you can potentially learn by collecting information yourself is really valuable. Um, you know, you, you can kind of imagine scenarios, you know, I mean, I, same boat for me, like I'm, you know, looking at scientific literature, I'm going to blog posts, I'm doing things like this and I'm learning from people all the time. But I think when you can actually quantify your own journey and your, and and the things that you're doing as a strength coach, that's where some of the best learning happens. So um, I basically, you know, was coaching up until 2010. That was my main focus, uh, Vancouver Olympics. And then, you know, I'd always had in the back of my head that I wanted to do a PhD and I guess I was waiting for the stars to align. Cause I couldn't really necessarily just pursue a PhD by itself. I had to keep working and doing the things that I'm doing. And, uh, I got really interested in helping our athletes out with knee injuries. So, um, primarily Alpine skiers, but lots of other athletes. And that's kind of where I am today is I'm, I'm primarily focused on helping those athletes out after injury, uh, running a research program. I've got some graduate students who are doing work in the area and I sit on quite a few different research committees at the university of Calgary and, and abroad. And, uh, yeah, just trying to, trying to, trying to figure out ways to help out athletes and to do it in a scientifically led way. So I know you've used a, a lot of force plate um, stuff, a lot of EMG sort of to validate and understand and to be able to objectively assess asymmetry. Um, maybe you can sort of explain to us um, in general how, how you go about sort of trying to quantify the asymmetries that you find and what you're actually looking at. Um, and then maybe we can spin off of that to uh, where that takes you and how it, how it informs you about what you're doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think the first thing to kind of distinguish is between kind of limb symmetry and then asymmetry. I know that seems like semantics, but it's actually a little bit different. Um, when you think about limb symmetry, you're typically talking about capacities like your strength, your power, your rate of force development. And the whole notion there is that you're trying to get your right side within a few percent of your left side, you know, minimizing that difference side to side when, when we talk about how strong or how much power somebody can generate. Uh, but when it comes to movement asymmetries, um, these are inherent in everything we do. I mean, that's kind of a really important point here is that every, like, kind of operate on this idea that everything we should do should be perfect, you know, outwardly appearing perfect in terms of precision of movement and whatnot. But the reality is, is we're highly asymmetrical in how we move. And that's actually important. And it's actually an important thing because it helps gives us, gives us bandwidth to be able to solve problems in novel ways, you know, in, in unexpected circumstances where we need to have the bandwidth to adjust what we're doing to be able to meet the demands of our, of our world. Um, so, you know, when I started off doing this, it was pretty organic, actually. I mean, I was, you know, um, primarily, I think at the time, just, you know, wanting to, to maybe get better measures of, of, of this idea of limb symmetry and output. But as I was using the dual force plate system in our, in our weight room back at the university at the time was in the Olympic oval as a coach, it was just super helpful. I mean, put two plates underneath each of the feet and have people squat, jump, power clean, whatever. And, and it was really cool to see how the right and the left contributed to the overall ground reaction force of that body center of mass. And it was valuable because when people were hurt, we could sort of see and measure these changes over time. Um, but you know, I, there was lots of counterintuitive things that came up and this is why I guess limb symmetry is different than movement asymmetry. One of those crazy things that we would observe is that we'd take an ACL injured athlete and we'd identify this phase of movement and jumping called the eccentric deceleration phase. That's where you're basically putting on the brakes as you change direction in the downward, you're heading down towards the ground and you're about to reverse your downward acceleration so you can start to come back up. And we would notice that at in certain athletes and at certain phases of rehabilitation, they would actually, uh, there would be a greater contribution to the ground reaction force from the injured side. 
And so you, right away, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they be doing that? Um, and then when they would be in the propulsive phase, they would do what you would expect, which is load through the, the non-injured side more. So we started to observe these strange, you know, things that kind of at the initial beginnings of all of this sort of thwarted my hunches and hypotheses about what I was trying to chase. But then I started to think about it like that. I was like, you know what? It's probably important that we have some asymmetries and it's probably important that these are variable. And sure enough, when we look at the science, what we see is that asymmetries are really task specific, movement specific, they're variable, they change within a single session and over time. And I guess what we're trying to use is the dual force plate system to capture when asymmetries are what we would expect and maybe when they're not and to use them to help inform our decision making around return to sport after injury. Mm, beautiful. Um, when you when you talk about being informed, what have been some of the uh, other, call it outcome um, outtakes that you've had, maybe you can say a story or an example of something that you didn't expect or you expected and you were sort of, um, you know, surprised by that. And, and since then, you've really looked at that as an important um, point of embarkation for deciding whether somebody's ready to return to sport or not um, from the from the information that you've gathered. Well, I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing that, that I, that I, um, that I would say, and I think the thing that would be most applicable to the listeners, uh, people that, you know, that we're, we're sharing knowledge with today is that, um, people can appear, um, can appear highly functional when it comes to performance tasks. How high do you jump on one leg? How far do you jump on one leg? How strong are you on one leg? How much do you squat single leg stance, you know, right to left? they can appear outwardly extremely functional. I'll use that in scare quotes. Uh, but when we actually go underneath the hood and start using more granular assessments of neuromuscular function, like surface EMG and using the dual force plate system to measure the ground reaction forces when, when, they're, when they're jumping and squatting, what we see is that, that um, athletes are really good at hiding things. So that's the biggest thing that I would say is that, you know, um, where my, my head's turned now is that when I'm dealing with an athlete as they're coming back from injury, I always say, it's like, I'm trying to be Sherlock Holmes and I'm coming to the scene of the accident with my magnifying glass and my DNA kit and my fingerprint kit. And I'm trying to figure out who killed the butcher, you know, like where are the clues? And I use those clues to help inform the decision-making process of a team. Um, and by a team, I mean this integrated performance team of support staff and experts that are trying to support this athlete. We use that information to help gather clues so we can make better decisions. Because if we just go into our silos and, you know, I, I'm sure the great Dr. Jeremy Shepard mentioned, you know, we're all servants to the purpose. And when we confuse our role with the purpose, we're, we're, we're going to get squirrely pretty quick. Um, when you define this as, well, I'm a strength coach, so my job is to get them strong side to side. And you just focus on what you do. Um, and the constructs that your profession cares about, uh, we tend to miss things. And, uh, you know, Scotty, I've got endless examples where we've been sitting there at that juncture only to find out that there's something there and new and novel, uh, some crazy way that an athlete's figured out how to compensate and hide something uh, from us. And if we, you know, uh, strategize as a team, I guess the important thing is not only can we first measure it, but secondly, um, I guess if we didn't measure it, we would have no clue. It would have, we would have no idea that it was there. Uh, but the third thing is, is that when you get a great team together, they can strategize on ways to address it. And um, we can often mitigate this stuff. And, and uh, you know, I think that's, uh, that's the important thing at the end of all this is that these anomalies, these things that we find where performance and function actually diverge from one another. And, you know, you might see them performing well, but actually not functioning all that well when you really measure it. Um, the ability to make, uh, to make headway in those things, I think, I think at the end of the day is an important part of helping an athlete get back healthy and safe after a big injury. What have, what have you learned about somebody's ability to produce force versus their ability to actually call it summate or bring force together through a series of different, uh, you know, joint, joint uh, relationships to actually produce, yeah. you know, a movement? Because, you know, we get, we get our, in the strength and conditioning industry, we get kind of our heads wrapped around, and you referred yeah. earlier around force production, but then yeah. there's actually how you coordinate that force and totally what yeah. what have you seen sort of differentiate those things and how do you how do you go about making sure that both equate or both are, they're brought together the way they need to be brought together yeah i mean you know 
uh, I was writing a book chapter this summer and, and the book chapter was on efficiency of movement. Um, it's for, uh, David Joyce's new book, uh, high performance training in sport, which is, I don't know when it's due to come out, but it was, a um, it's going to be a great piece of, of work once it does. Uh, but it was interesting to note, you know, I was going through some of the literature on cycling and, uh, track cycling and cycling is a great way to study mechanical efficiency in humans because it's kind of standardized, right? You're on a bike and you can control lots of things. And it's not like, you know, you know, field sports or something that are really complex and, and, and hard to, hard to measure. But it's interesting to note that, you know, you would think that you'd need to get all the, like, let's just keep it in like building off your, your, uh, your thoughts there, Scotty, like imagine you got these actuators, you know, hip extensors, knee extensors, plantar flexors. And you would think that the goal would be, man, I'll just turn the dial to 10 on all of those actuators and we'll get the most possible power out of that system on the bike. But it's interesting to note that that's actually not what happens. Um, you know, the power of the system is actually optimal, not when each of those actuators are turned up to max, it's, it's an optimal amount. And, you know, there's a, there's a coordination piece that's there. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember is that when we talk about maximal muscle strength and maximal muscle power, those in of, the, of themselves are measurable quantities, measurable capacities. But when we talk about task specific strength, that really starts to come into how that human coordinates uh, themselves to manage all the complexity of their systems, uh, the environment that they're in, the tasks, demands of what's going on, and how they coordinate to execute. And, um, you know, in those situations, I think that the two things are interlinked, but they're also a bit different. I mean, one really cool example, and I'm, I'm sure you'll have her on this uh, at some point, is Dr. Sophia Nymphius, a really good friend of mine from Edith Cowan University. Uh, Soph's, uh, one of Soph's graduate students, uh, Dan Kedlick, um, is doing his PhD, uh, looking at change of direction ability in young, um, soccer players and field sport athletes, uh, females. And what he's noted is that when you assess strength at the joints, so let's say the hip, the knee, and the ankle, and you kind of, uh, um, stratify the athletes by their level of strength, what he's finding is a relationship with how they actually change direction. And then if you go back and you give more availability at that joint by strengthening the muscles around that joint, it changes how they move. And so these things are interdependent, right? So if I have a 25% deficit in knee extensor strength, which happens all the time after ACL injury, what we'll find is that athletes can compensate really well for that deficit. They just become more hip dominant and ankle dominant. So you can be walking around with 25% less quadriceps strength, which actually is a really good predictor about whether or not you're going to have a successful return to sport doesn't mean I'm going to perform any differently because maybe I can compensate so well, change my strategy so well that to meet the demands of jumping as far as I can, I just find a different way to do it. So those deficits absolutely shape how we move, right? And, 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 and what we know is that um, very much your expression of strength and, and, and power are, are really task specific. So, um, you know, and likewise, just going back to that, if I take that athlete with a 25% deficit in quadriceps strength and I make their symmetry better in strength, lo and behold, it changes how they move. So, you know, it's, it's this interdependence between the fact that, you know, strength is task specific. Like you think about a boxer or, you know, um, uh, um, a martial artist throwing a punch or throwing a kick, the ability to throw with great power and speed and, and to hit with high force isn't really a strength thing per se, like how strong are you? It's how you coordinate. But on the other hand, we know that by changing um, the constraints in that human by changing his or her strength, it's going to shape movement. So that's, I think the, that's the, you know, how I think about it, Scotty is really much that, you know, um, there's an interdependence between how strong our muscles are and how we move. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and where we get confused sometimes is, is thinking that if you just turn the volume up on all those muscles, you're going to be performing better, but that's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. So yeah, it's, it's how we think about the problem. I think that's important. Very cool. We've got a few questions coming in. So I'm going to let Jamie read one of the questions to you. Yeah. So Zach was asking, what advice would you provide to a young professional who is contemplating doing a PhD and continuing on in research? What factors influenced your decision to do a PhD? Well, I mean, hey, I mean, the first point is, is don't, what's that story, Scotty? And first of all, he was nuts, but that's okay. <laughs> I oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, you know what I, what I would say, Zach is, you know, just to give you um, some perspective on this is that I remember contemplating the whole idea of a PhD. And, it, and to be honest with you, it was the same thing when I went to do my master's. 
um, I had individuals that I greatly respected that said, why, why would you bother? Like who needs, who needs to do this? It's, you know, you, you just kind of sign off on it and, and, you know, you get through this whole process and at the end of the day, it doesn't really change anything. And I guess all I can say to you is that from my experience doing the masters and the PhD was hugely, hugely impactful, um, uh, on, on me, uh, because, and valuable for me, uh, because it's just like, it's almost like formal journaling. And I know that sounds a little crazy because science is not about journaling and just stating your opinions, but you're really journaling how you think about a problem. And then you're devising a way to test your assumptions about that problem. And, and then you have a whole bunch of other experts who've been through this rigmarole of a PhD and who do science, uh, challenging you and testing you and, and pushing you to see what you, you know, to see where those limits are. And, and I just would say that you know, overall, the whole process, just so you know, so you're not scared away from it, I found it really valuable. Um, so um, I think that's a check box in, in the right, in the right, in the, in, you know, in the first box of a pro to do it. But just importantly, to get at your question, some really big considerations, choose your, choose your supervisors carefully. Um, you know, I think some of the horror stories you hear about are about students that kind of get locked in underneath a a supervisor where they're, um, you know, especially if you're interested in, in still working while you do your, your graduate work, you don't want to get locked in to be the sort of, um, uh, you know, um, in a, in a very inflexible situation that doesn't allow you to grow in the multiple directions that coaches need to keep growing in, even though you're doing your studies. So having that flexibility with a supervisor and that understanding that you need to have some flexibility to be able to grow in other areas as a coach is super important. Um, and I think the second thing that I would say is, um, you really want to focus on finding questions that are, are important to you. And, and by this, I mean, you know, the reason that I connected, you know, for example, in my master's work and my, and my PhD work, uh, to the process of, of the research was because I really cared deeply about the questions that I was trying to answer. And I believe they were really important. And, and again, I would say this from having observed other students is if you're getting into that world and you don't give a crap about what you're studying, which happens a lot, you just are now into it to get the piece of paper and to get the letters after your name. Um, it can become a grind. So, um, I always keep that, uh, kept that sort of close to my heart is that you want to be passionate about what you're studying and, and, and do it because you care. Um, and, and, um, you know, if you can, if you can keep that in, it'll give you the motivation on those long, dark days to kind of keep to keep pushing through, um, you know, final point, and then I'll, I'll wrap, I'll wrap it up. Cause I don't mean to be long winded here, but I think it's another important thing is start today. Every single time you guys write programs, you're doing science. I mean, it, we forget this, the scientific process about observing and then arriving at a problem and then coming up with a hypothesis and designing something to test that hypothesis and then gathering uh, data to see whether or not, um, you know, to see whether or not, there's evidence to kind of reject that hypothesis that we call the null hypothesis. That whole process kind of happens organically with training. You do it all the time. You meet an athlete, you gather information, you arrive at a problem. You come up with a hunch that if I prescribe this particular exercise program in a specific way, it's going to elicit some change. And that change is going to occur in some sort of timeline and across some of, of uh, some parameters. And I'm not saying that everything you do is measurable necessarily, but there are things that are measurable. And I think if you get in that mindset right now as a coach about testing your own ideas every time you write a program, you'll find that you actually get a bit of a, a, a bug for the science part of it, which I think is, um, you know, once you get that first little bug of, of how good it feels to kind of go through the process of challenging your assumptions and your ideas, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it makes training and, and programming as a strength coach so much more interesting. So um, those are three kind of big pieces of advice, I guess, or long-winded pieces of advice, but maybe little nuggets. Yeah, well, I think they're really valuable. I, you know, I was excited to introduce, uh, and I think many people already know you in the group and introduce you to the group uh, of, of people here because um, I think you have a very healthy and dynamic perspective around this whole process of why you did a PhD, what it is, how it informs you. I think sometimes nowadays it's become kind of a, a bit of a checkbox that people expect they think they have to do. And I, I think ne neither do you have to do it or do you, sh should you not do it in the sense that to, uh, to your point, you should be doing it because you really are curious and you want to expose yourself in that curiosity to higher and higher levels of, 
of ob- objectiveness and, and 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 thought and thought from a lot of different angles. And I think yeah. that's the power of it. Good on you. Um, I want to sort of pivot off of uh, what we were talking about and and get into a little bit of, around how you know what you've learned in the last. It, through your scientific um, exposure in the last, say, 10 years, has informed your training programming. So when you look back at how you used to train athletes and how maybe you look at it now, um, what do you do differently because of what you've learned in the last five to 10 years? Um, I mean, you know, I'll answer generally, and then I'll give a one specific example. Um, I mean, the general, the general, um, the general response is that um, when we are involved in the care of an athlete who's coming back after injury, we don't, we don't leave anything to thoughts, emotions, feelings, and just, you know, we hope it works. Like we, we really are trying to scrutinize our decision-making and we are trying to do that because of the fact that athletes can hide so much from you in terms of, of, of functional deficits that are trainable. Um, and, and honestly, my experience is, is you don't know they're there unless you measure them. And so I think that's the first global answer is that, you know, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of, of being Sherlock Holmes and trying to figure out what the athletes are hiding from you is, is an important, uh, um, thing to, to think about. Um, the second thing that I would say, and I've been, I've been, um, uh, exploring a lot more in, in the past, I would say eight to eight months to a year and a half, roughly, um, with some of our more complicated, uh, injuries that we've had, um, is the idea that, um, kind of coming back to what we talked about earlier, Scotty, is your ability to self-organize, to express force and power, um, and to do that in a really complex task, like let's say a power clean, um, versus your concentric and eccentric movement abilities, versus your maximal strength and your rate of force development are all these variables that can kind of recover and, and change, um, at different time courses and in different ways. So, you know, you could see an example where an athlete is coming back from injury and wows you with a personal best in the power clean, you know, and, and, and they're doing this very early on and you wouldn't expect them to be able to do that, but then you can go back and go into these more granular assessments in a similar way. Like, let's say you have the person do a loaded, uh, a loaded, um, uh, clean pull or a loaded uh, 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 counter movement jump with a trap bar, kind of similar, you know, and in, in, I guess in concept with a power clean, you've got some external load that you're trying to move as fast as you can. Um, what's really interesting in those cases, Scotty, and where my head's been going a lot more is that it seems like this ability for athletes with injury to express force during eccentric movements um, and to do it when, when the demands are high, meaning they have to make force fast um, are, are, um, are really, um, uh, an important, uh, place for us to focus throughout the rehabilitation process. And it's something that I think has been overlooked because we often just look at how far did you jump? How much extensor torque did you put out in a dynamometer? Um, but that capturing that dynamic eccentric movement, um, is something that I, I believe is, um, uh, an area for, for, for me, uh, of like future interest for research, but also something that more and more and more I'm trying to quantify more effectively so I can inform my programming better. Cause it does seem, and this is an anecdote. It does seem that when you target in and you find those deficits and you target your programs to address those deficits, we can actually restore those, uh, to, to let's say a comparable level to what they would have had pre-injury. And now it's just one more box along the boxes that we're trying to address and check, uh, as we, as we aim to restore an athlete's functional abilities, um, coming back after injury. It's interesting that you say that because uh, not being the scientist that you are, I, I uh, consider myself more of a pragmatist. But at the end of the day, like I think uh, what I've, I've observed over time is, uh, is exactly that, is we, we often are taught and as we're growing in the training industry to really work on power yeah. and power expression, explosiveness, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, all this stuff. And func- functionally, I think at the end of the day, how we decelerate, how we accommodate, how we acquire the ground is and coordinate 
that as one of the most important things, uh, if not the most important thing. We, we need to be able to stop ourselves before we can, you know, explode forwards. Like, you don't want to build a car with no brakes, so to speak. No, absolutely. And, and, and you know, Scotty, I, I, I think, you know, I think that that's the dance between, like, if you're, that's the dance that we're doing as coaches between, you know, what we see and observe and our hunches and, and, you know, then maybe what we are able to kind of back up with a bit of science down the road, but I couldn't agree more. And another anecdote for you and, and, you know, anecdotes are these one-offs that, that, that means that if we tested this on a hundred different people and we aim to do it in a very systematic way, we might find the anecdote is nothing more than an outlier or just a, you know, just happened to be, you know, a random occurrence, but has nothing to do with something real happening. But if you guys will all just be willing to tolerate this idea of the anecdote, um, because I think that's how coaches work is we work on anecdotes a lot of the time is, um, kind of building off this idea. One of the things that I've noted is that, is that, um, just simply putting yourself through the paces in the gym and lifting more weight and doing, uh, and putting out more horsepower, um, actually isn't enough. Uh, in fact, in fact, it's actually, it could actually, from what I've seen, you know, measure, measure, measurably, um, is that it's actually counterproductive. So what this ties in is that the quality in how you express that force and that power, the quality in how you absorb energy, especially when you're compensating around an injury, that quality is really, really, really key in overall pushing the athlete towards a good adaptation. And, you know, I can remember this goes back to kind of back in the day with my early roots with Charles Pollockin and, and, you know, Andre Benoit, two great guys that, um, you know, sh- sort of shaped my in the early days as a strength coach in Calgary. But I can remember talking to Charles and especially Andre saying, you know, Matt, if you're, you know, let's say I was doing a bench press or something or a squat. And, you know, you'd say, you know, if you're not adhering to the technical, um, to strict, technical uh, execution and strict technical um, mastery of, of the movement competency um, you're you're going to hit a plateau through which you cannot you cannot get any stronger so for example if I'm doing a you know I'm just using this for because I'm sitting but imagine I'm doing a bench press and I you know I, I I lose my scapular control and I grind myself as I'm pushing the load off my chest um, you can imagine a scenario where it's true. You hit a, you hit a, you hit a flat line and it's almost impossible to continue to get strong. But when you break back down and you find good positions and postures off of which you express force and power, um, very often what you see is you have to regress first and then you're trucking along, but then you're actually able to move through that pre-existing load that you could never get through. And so, you know, back to that point, it's this idea, Scotty, that how we absorb energy and how, and because that movement happens so quickly, like in a vertical jump, we're talking like 150 milliseconds. It's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to see. I mean, I, I think you can see aspects of it, but when you really kind of look at how quickly that happens, the quality that you express that force, uh, how you express that force is seems to be a really key thing about helping that athlete restore functionality. Cause if you just say, go, Hey, go there and just lift as much weight as you can and try to increase that slope and do what you can. If the quality of movement's not there, all bets are off. They often regress, things get worse, they get stuck, they can't get through it. Then they start to get injured and things start to spiral out of control. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, it's a very astute point. And I know you're great. You and Jamie are both really great at, um, capturing that. And you, you know, you were used the word pragmatically, but I just think you guys are so experienced that you're able to extract that in your training and, and the work you do with your athletes. So, Cool. We got a couple of questions. I think uh, Janine Condis is the next question up. Yeah. So this is with teams. Is what is the one thing you see that lacks when it comes to strength and conditioning within teams? Within teams, like teams of athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it's it's int- it's interesting. Like I I would say that um, you know if you'd asked me uh, fifteen years ago, I probably would have said basic competencies in movements like squatting, pushing, pulling, uh, rotation, you know, linear acceleration, all these basic competencies that we talk about in sport. Um, you know, generally I would say that, that they were very, very low. Um, and it's interesting that today what I see lacking in teams is, uh, athletes have been so overcoached to, express movement in such a specific way, according to coaches constructs, by the way. Right. So 
you know, it's like, you know, do it this way for some reason, you know, turn your hand like this when you do this, this drill or put your foot like this or drag your toe or don't drag your toe, all these, you know, crazy, um, you know, crazy things that we arrive at. Um, not really for any good reason. We just sort of like, you know, build these, these narratives in our head, you know, uh, strong narratives too. Um, what I feel is happening today is athletes are so overcoached that they almost still have the same problem you know, that they, they, they can master things according to how you've scripted them to do it, but then you pull them outside of that bandwidth. And, um, and I don't know that they've got the creativity anymore to solve problems, um, uh, like they, they possibly need to be able to. So that, that's a, you know, kind of, kind of the same thing in teams. Like they used to lack technical competency and they still sort of do, but now they lack technical competency, maybe because they're so overcoached that they can only do things one way. Um, and I think that maybe is, uh, narrowing the bandwidth, you know, we're maybe overtraining our, our athletes a little bit too much in those respects. Hmm. Interesting. Got another, you have another? Yeah, we've got a couple here. Um, so from Steve Ingram, he says, hi, Matt, you mentioned athletes hiding movement deficits. Do you find athletes that have less than ideal movement prior to injury do a better job of hiding these deficits or is it the mature, better movers that better hide deficits? Um, uh, I think that it is the mature, um, it's the mature athletes that are better able to compensate is, is from what I, what I've seen. I think that when you, um, you know, when they talk, you know, this is not meant to be some crazy gender stereotype. So I apologize if it's coming across that way, but you know, like the, the old man strength, and we talk about that and sometimes you talk about that when you're wrestling with your dad, you're like, my dad never could, you know, I could never overtake him, even though I was stronger than him because he expressed the strength in a certain way. I think that what we start to see is with time is, and with development that athletes become much, much better at expressing force and power, um, in ways that are really creative. Number one, and number two, uh, ways that are just highly efficient and highly effective. And so, um, from what I've seen is that, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with elite athletes, they're the ones who surprise me the most with how well they've been able to hide that deficit. Normally when it's a young development athlete, their deficits slap you right in the face and you can see, you can see, you know, without having to, um, you know, do much, you can see, um, you can see them much more, um, they're much more obvious. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my experience. Do you- uh, you know, I know you've done a lot of work around uh, ACL rehab and and uh, some of the causal issues. I'm just curious on both sides of that spectrum. Um, are there two, three things that you've recognized now are are potential red flags in m- people's movement strategies or force production strategies uh, pre injury, and then in the rehab process, what have you learned are really some some really important um, call it uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Markers. Well, yeah, mile markers for the process that you, you need to really cross these in order to know you're ready to go back. Um, in, in essence. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, this is, uh, I think we, we often, uh, I was just on a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, the, the, um, uh, Stedman, the Philippon clinic in, in Vail and the USOC put on an injury prevention clinic, um, online, of course. And, uh, a guy named Roald Barr, who's, um, sport medicine physician from Norway, uh, gave, uh, sort of the opening keynote talk for the, for the conference. And, um, Roald Barr put up this kind of sequence, you know, and, of, of, of what we're trying to do in sport. And, you know, obviously the Holy grail, the home run, the, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the thing that we would love and we're all chasing is that, you know, based on a few tests, you could predict which athlete was going to get injured and which, which athlete wouldn't. And, you know, I think that the, the challenges with that idea is that injuries, injury events are so complex and there's so many things that are wrapped into them that the ability to predict is, um, I mean, I think what we see is that it's, it's tough, right? It's tough to do that on a, on a, on a, you know, with the accuracy that I think we would all say we would need to have. Um, but kind of moving beyond that, Scotty, I think where, where my head goes is, is more along the lines of being able to, uh, you know, pinpoint these, uh, pinpoint these trainable deficits, like what, you know, what kind of care about is, you know, you kind of care about on any given day, day in, day out is, 
you know, what can I change? You know, what can I, what can I change through training? And, and I'll just, you know, I know this is kind of segueing a little bit from the question, but uh, that same day, so Roa Bar kind of kicks it off in the morning with this idea, you know, he says basically why prediction of injury will probably never work, but doesn't mean that you don't baseline your athletes because you can find things that you didn't know were there and you can address them. And then later in the day, uh, Sophia Nymphius did a beautiful presentation talking about the female athlete. And she was saying, you know, we, we focus on all of these things like the phase of the, of the menstrual cycle and just being female and all these factors that are, are related potentially to injury. Um, but she went back to something really obvious that, you know, nobody adjusts for things like how strong somebody is, you know, coming back to basic things like, you know, not only do I move uh, competently, but I also have enough strength to absorb that energy and to, to be in those high force scenarios. Um, nobody adjusts for that. And, and she said, why don't we look for things more like that? And I guess this was a paper that she, uh, she cited, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, that most female athletes actually have less qualified strength and conditioning coaches working with them. So, you know, she's like, if you want to adjust a problem, which is supposedly that females, because you're a female, are more at risk for injury, you know, her, her, her words, not mine, were that let's start making sure that we adjust for the controllables and control the controllables. And, you know, let's adjust for things that we know are important, like how well you're physically prepared for high-risk environments. Mm. Um, so anyways, kind of coming back to, you know, I kind of deviated a little bit there from the question, maybe, Scotty, but I think those are some important thoughts about the process because I just don't think that for me to get on the call and say, hey, here are the five predictors that you need to look at and here are the five things you need to do. I mean, I think you guys would probably all enjoy that, um, but I would be uh, lying through my teeth because there are very few things that actually have the evidence to support that. I will say this just because I think it's important just to give this uh, uh, importantly to the, to the group as I do think that coaches had on now um, that those eccentric deceleration uh, abilities and those and those um, uh, times where we're absorbing energy, I think they're particularly important. And I think there, there, that's an, that's a place where um, you know don't just look at how much low weight the li- athlete lifted and how high they jumped and how you know how how far they jumped right to left. We to Scotty to your point, we really need to be thinking about how they absorb energy and and how not only how how how. Um, how, how much they can do that based on their muscular capacities, but how do they coordinate to do that as well? Uh, because those are two, I, I think, essential things to, to help reduce the risk profile for an athlete in, in the case of, you know, preventable lower body injury. Awesome. Well, as you know, I mean, reconditioning is this, you know, this idea of trying to bring the two worlds of therapy and, and performance training together and giving them a sort of yeah. a common language of practice. And, you know, um, you and I have had great conversations over the years uh, around this whole subject matter. Um, you know, the, the, the common practice in most situations is you have a therapist who starts out that initial rehabilitation process and then there's going to be some point in which that hands off to a training practitioner because of either circumstances uh insurance ending um you know the 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 next stage or even qualifications and capacities it's that transitional point that sometimes is a deficit space in terms of what the therapist has done to educate produce and prepare the person to what the strength and conditioning coach believes they should be working on you know what what have been some of your um, your insights in your process of growth and development professionally that have allowed you to make that handoff smoother, so that you you know you understand what the the therapist has done, where this athlete is in transition, and where you're going now, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing is understanding you know the purpose and understanding my role in serving that purpose. Um, you know, where, where things get super confusing is when you begin to think that your solutions are the solution to improve sport performance. And let's just face it. When you look at an elite athlete who expresses force and power and does all these amazing things on the field of play, it had nothing to do with their strength and conditioning coach or very little to do with how they do that. And instead, what the therapist and the strength coach are doing are unlocking maybe a little more potential for what was already there. And I think things get really, really squirrely when we start to define that according to the things we care about. So if you're an Olympic lifting coach, and I'm not trying to pick on Olympic lifters because I love Olympic lifting and don't do it anymore, really. But, you know, back in the day I did. 
um, you'll notice that strength coaches will have a bias towards being like, I, this, the Olympic lifting becomes the most important thing for any athlete to do. So we measure based on how great our athletes Olympic lift rather than stepping back and thinking to ourselves, you know, it's about how they express performance in their sport. And we are helping to unlock a little bit of that. And to that end, um, when I think it comes down to unlocking that potential, the interplay between the therapist and the coach, the strength coach is so important because it's the nuance right at that level. It's the nuance that actually can make the difference. And when we start to overcomplicate things and by overcomplicating things, I mean, you know, there's endless examples of coaches where we and, and therapists for that matter, that try to create these models that don't, don't unlock potential. They're about fulfilling their own ideas really. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when we sort of see ourselves go back and, you know, the, the thing that Jeremy Shepard always says, when we, when we, when we keep ourselves as a servant to, to purpose and we work in collaboration to help unlock, I think that's where, you know, that's where I've been at my best. Um, I feel like that's where, you know, we've been able to have the most impact, um, with an athlete. And, and that's why I think that relationship is so key. They go, they go hand in hand, right? I'll go back to this idea that, you know, sometimes people will say, wow, doing leg extensions aren't functional. And, you know, I'll think to myself, well, you've got a 25% deficit in your quadriceps strength. If I give you more bandwidth at the knee joint, it changes how you move fundamentally. So it is functional because by increasing the capacity at the joint, it changes, it gives you more options. It's the same thing with giving more range of motion. If you have somebody who's walked through the thoracic spine and Jamie does work and Scotty, I know you do that. You you both do your work and I've seen this happen. You unlock a little potential, right? And now all of a sudden that athlete is freed up and so much stuff starts to unravel because of that simple act of giving somebody a little more active range through a segment of their body. So is it functional for them to be doing a, a thoracic mobility drill? Hell yeah, it is, right? It's just targeted. It's specific. It's been done through a process. It's not like, you know, throwing a, you know, a, a whack of stuff at them and just hoping something works. That's why your process around how you assess and how you evaluate and how you work together is so key. To me, that's the cornerstone of what I think, you know, you, you, you both bring to the, so well to the community is the process you're using to evaluate and assess and target in on what matters and where you're going to start with sort of making change is really what the beautiful part is about, about how you guys all work. And um, I mean, at the end of the day, Scotty, like that's, that can sometimes feel like that's just not enough for a coach. If all you were thinking about doing is, yeah, I just came in and locked a little extra range of motion through the T-spine and we cleaned up some things here and there. You know, there's a lot of coaches who feel like they really haven't done much. And, and that's where we get into trouble because, you know, you start doing more and more and more thinking that you're helping, but you're not. You're serving your own need to feel important rather than just being okay with contributing a little bit to an overall very complex and and, uh, and, uh, you know, a very complex and, but also highly impressive world that we work in, which is these amazing athletes expressing movement, expressing force and power on the field of play and doing things creatively with their bodies and minds that, you know, very few people in the world can do. Yeah, that stuff's a- not coached in a gym, man. It's not coached in a gym. It's, coached, <laughs> it's, it's, right. it's brought to life by experts in very surgical and specific ways uh, and, and using processes like the ones that you guys teach on. That's a beautiful response. Um, we have a couple more questions. I do. Um, so from Joseph Bondock, it says, in the context of designing a program for an athlete that favors a specific direction or pattern, i.e. golfers, tennis players, soccer players, etc., how important is it to improve the capability and capacity in the opposite direction of the movement or the asymmetries in the limbs? Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at Rep performance app.com today 
Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. You know, to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that this is something that's been really well studied. And, you know, I would say that um, I had a really interesting, I was uh, last summer and Scotty, I know you and, and, and uh, Jamie were here the year before me, but I was down in Philadelphia at the 76ers had their sports science conference last year and it was great. Um, and they had a Harvard, uh, neurologist, uh, neuroscientist who was there and, and he, man, that was one of the greatest presentations I've seen from, you know, uh, that entire year, it just stood out. Um, just the ability to explain the most complex and challenging concepts of how, around how our brains work and to convert that to a room in a, in a simple and elegant way. Uh, it was truly, uh, it's truly amazing. So, you know, as I'm, I'm up there now later and, and sort of talking through this idea of movement asymmetries and athletes and how we sometimes see these persistent asymmetries and blah, 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 blah. He asked me this really interesting question around, you know, if you've been moving around, like, and I'm going to give a couple scenarios, sorry, I'm not trying to make this long winded, you know, you got an athlete who's symmetrical, but super weak. Right. And now you've got an athlete who's got a 20% asymmetry, but they're really strong on both sides. Would you rather have the asymmetrical athlete or the symmetrical athlete? A lot of people work through this and they're like, uh, take the asymmetrical athlete. Actually, if you have two strong legs, but you just happen to be, you know, strong, really a lot stronger on one side than the other, it's probably better than being weak on both sides. And as we were walking through about this notion of sort of uh, reducing movement asymmetry and, and reducing limb symmetry, he challenged my th- thinking on this. And he said, you know, have you ever accounted for how long it would take the brain to adapt to this new bandwidth and no i said i i mean no (laughs) i hadn't and but i should because that's the idea that everything that we do when we change how the system is self-organizing and we give more bandwidth there is absolutely a period of adjustment that needs to happen as the brain and the nervous system rewire itself for the available the availability that's that's sort of been given to it and so I think, you know, Scotty, at, at the end of the day, like that's, that's a, a big thing that comes to mind, you know, in terms of, 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 uh, of, of the question is, is the, the idea that when you're in a sport where laterality is a part of it, um, think about an amputee, think about, uh, think about, uh, you know, a tennis player, you know, um, what, what is there that is there because that is how the system has self-organized to express optimally in those conditions and what is there that's because of a limitation? And so I think I would just encourage that when you're dealing with athletes in those sports, we need to be very careful with how we approach the problem. And that's not to say I'm sitting on the fence here a little bit because that's not to say that, for example, for a tennis player who's all locked up on one side by virtue of having played a ridiculous amount of tennis in their careers and their internal rotators of their shoulder are locked and matted and cranky and their external rotators are of their shoulder are, you know, uh, weakened and lengthened and they're in bad positions. Um, you know, I think we would probably all agree in those circumstances that creating a little more structural balance around the joint is actually a good thing. Um, but I would, I would just caution on, you know, measuring asymmetries, movement asymmetries, especially, and then concluding that we need to get rid of all these things, uh, because a, a more symmetrical athlete is a better athlete. And I think that's a, maybe a false assumption. Um, um, that, or at least one that we need to challenge with a couple of other people around us to make sure we're keeping ourselves honest. Yeah, I, I really like that response in many ways. I think what you said for me around the, I call it horsepower sort of equation that we sort of build horsepower in, in, in an off-season program 
Um, I think sometimes that goes back to that question, how much is too much? And sometimes, you know, your brain, like you just said, has to accommodate to that. And if you've got all this force, but your system doesn't really manage that force correctly, then sometimes it's counterintuitive, right? So there's a, we've got to be looking at that all the time. Um, do we have another question? We do. We have another question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> from Glenn Kinney, from your experience working with professional Olympic athletes, what factors distinguish human performance between a good athlete and the most elite athlete? Well, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll give a, a couple of thoughts. Uh, number one, um, uh, unbelievable self-regulation mm-hmm. from the best, the best of the best. The best of the best are um, also very purpose-driven. You know, they don't come into the gym saying, I've got to be the strongest that guy in the gym and i got to be the strongest guy in the bike and i got to be the strongest guy here. You know, they're okay with being fifth on the list, fourth on the list, sixth on the list. Um, they are able to pull back and be like, you know what, today I just wasn't feeling it, so I took a step back from that workout and I'm cool with that. Um, they're able to give themselves, um, uh, they have the un- unbelievable ability to uh, self-regulate and to have that awareness about what matters. Uh, second thing is they keep their team tight. It's another thing that I notice a lot with elite athletes that are truly the best athletes is that they're not searching for answers from a thousand different people. You know, they, they have a trusted group that they, that they, that they believe in, that they buy in that trust is earned. Uh, it's not given easily, but when they have that trusted group, um, you know, they're able to focus on that information and to focus on the things that, that help them. And so you don't see a scattered approach and oftentimes good athletes, uh, tend to get a little bit more perky jerky in terms of who they're going to trust, what they're going to listen to, what new thing they're on today, what new thing they're on tomorrow. And I think it's one of the reasons why as coaches, we need to be pretty disciplined in how we act, right? Like if you're a coach who's all over the map and trying this and trying that, and you're you're giving this false impression that there's a magic bullet out there. I think that can leach into your brain, your, your athletes brains. Right. And, and the best athletes don't operate like that. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the greatest athletes is, and this has been my general experience is that they're typically good humans, not always. Uh, but they're also, um, very aware of what their team brings to their own success And what we're getting on here is a little bit of personal leadership, right? That as a personal leadership endeavor, we recognize that you need a team around you, that you need that support. Uh, You recognize your team, you build your team. And, and um, the best athletes have an ability to kind of recognize the, what their, their team brings to the table. And I think that um, they're oftentimes in my experience, they've been among the most appreciative. They've been among the most, also the most highest expectations of people around them. Uh, but at the end of the day that that's, um, those are some characteristics and, you know, certainly like the best athletes in the world just have that uncanny ability, right? Like they are like, I think we see it as well in our children as they grow, you know, some children just have great ability to express human movement. And it's like a pianist. It's like a artist. It's like, it's a gift. And to think that everyone just gets that gift because you're a human is, probably not the case. Um, there's something about how the brain works and how they're able to read plays, read movement, read, read the world around them. Um, um, that really, um, at the end of the day, I think makes them special. Um, we can sometimes get a little bit lost in thinking that there's a magic sauce there or a secret sauce that we can take and bottle up and give to somebody else. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, I think these things are, are really innate to, to some, to some people. Amazing. Um, do we have another question or are we done with We questions? have another quick oh, question. Oh, we have another quick question. So this one again is from Zach. It says, what is the solution to this lack of technical competence or lack of creativity? I think it goes back to, you know, you were talking about good athletes being able to find yeah. solutions. It is, is it going back and having athletes sample a variety of activities as youth or how do we improve the creativity of an athlete as an AT or SNC? Oh, you know, this is such a big question, but like, you know, I can recall, you know, this was back in the day when I was um, basically 90% of what I did was strength and conditioning. But I can recall, you know, um, uh, a group of hockey players I was training. And on this Wednesday workout, we did a recovery session, which was mobility and, you know, some, uh, I can't remember what we did at the time, it was ages ago, but you, you get the gist, recovery. 
And I remember at the end of the session, the guy who'd kind of been, um, the, I guess you could call him the agent of the players came up to me and said, listen, Matt, you gotta, you gotta do more in these sessions. Like parents are expecting that their kids walk away sweaty and sore and vomiting. And if they don't get that, um, they're not going to want to spend their money with you. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, okay, so here I am probably giving them the most important thing that they need, which is good recovery skills. And, you know, but, but, you know, we, we got, we got a bit of a problem there. And so I think there's a real, and I, and I empathize with coaches, myself included, because there's a real pressure on us to be able to deliver and to deliver something different. And that makes it extremely challenging because you are, constantly trying to, you know, devise a new program, devise a new scheme, you know, give people what they want rather than what they need. And, um, it puts a lot of pressure on us to be able to look like we're doing something important. And, and to that end, you know, if you're, if you're not on a, you know, on a, on a track with your 20 athletes and coaching everybody and screaming at everybody and pan here, arm here, up, up, you know, whatever. And, and there's not that outward appearance that you're actually doing something. There's a fear in a lot of coaches that you're not doing anything and it's going to be perceived like that. And so I think it's, I think it's a challenge with our industry, right? Because we're trying to serve a purpose, but we, we misconstrue that with the role. Right. And I think at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're definitely a part of the problem, but I think it's because we are so, um, there's so much pressure on us to figure out how to create value. And, and I think that's where, um, that, that's where one of the big sources of issues are. And the second thing I'll say is, you know, I'd love to see some data on this and I'm sure it exists. I'm just unaware of it, but for sure the, um, my experience is the, the amount of structured play is much higher today, right? So there's organized games, organized hockey, organized soccer, organized this, organized that, um, and as a parent, I feel this, like, you know, what, what, if, if your kid's not enrolled in four things, you feel like you're letting the world down and letting your kids down. Um, you know, I, I go to my son's hockey practices all the time in games and parents have their kids block booked. You know, it's like the running parents are freaking running. Kids are running. And if I, if I think back to free play, I think free play is where a lot of those movement skills get up, get developed over time. And so maybe there's a transition point in there where we're missing that. And maybe there's a bit of a transition where we're um, uh, failing to realize that when you're coaching an athlete, you can manipulate the internal constraints, how strong, how fit uh, you can manipulate the task constraints, you know, hold the stick, don't hold the stick. You can manipulate the environment and that these give you levers to pull as a coach, to be able to design practices and design, um, design your sessions. And I think at the end of the day, the, the really purposeful use of how you build practices and build layers and sessions, um, uh, you know, to me is maybe the, the way that we get out of this alongside a little bit of education so that we get the heat off our backs when uh, people are challenging us to, 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 to demonstrate that we're valuable. Um, and that's part of the problem because as soon as you feel you need to do that, you start doing all kinds of crazy things to try to show that you're valuable rather than uh, standing your ground and being, being okay with doing the little bit that really matters. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great way to finish questions wise. I want to give you a couple of moments at the end here because one of the things I think you're doing some outstanding educational work yourself, teaching people lots of uh, methods and madness out there. I just want you to introduce what it is you teach and some of the things pe- where people can find you if they want to explore some of the stuff, your wisdom that uh, I know you can bring to the table. Uh, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, so the first, the first thing I'll say is, um, you know, I'm really proud to work at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary. It's one of four Olympic training centers in Canada. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not always easy working in an Olympic sport in in Canada, but I think that the premise of what we bring to the table is this idea of um, all of these domain specific experts who have the personal leadership and the wherewithal to work together to strategize in ways to keep these athletes healthy and safe and to work deep in the system right to the top to be able to create that continuity. Um, and through my work at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, we offer, um, it's not happening this year. It's actually supposed to happen this week. We op- offer a, a yearly strength and power performance course where we invite people in to be able to be a part of our systems and, and to learn from our coaches. Um, we also do a bit of a deeper dive into some of the stuff that I was talking about earlier in this, in this, uh, um, uh, uh, 
this online session with you guys is, you know, the more deeper diagnostics and neuromuscular testing. Um, and, um, you know, that, that coaching community is there and we, and we really try to, to bring that out, uh, dovetailing off that for those of you who do want to maybe pursue a master's is, you know, from our course, we dovetail into an internship, which is a paid internship, which is rare these days. We actually pay our interns and enough to live and it's not a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great experience. Uh, but dovetailing off the internship, um, you know, applicants who are, uh, sort of have the, the interest and, you know, things are moving in the right direction. We do provide a, a scholarship strength and conditioning position at, at the jointly between our Institute and the university of Calgary, which is a really cool place, you know, for those of you who are like, Hey, I'd like to do a graduate degree. Um, you know, we're very selective about who gets into the program, but that is an option for coaches. And, and it's something I wish I had when I was coming through the coming through the ranks. Um, and then the last thing, Scotty, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to say this, um, but through my website, this is my personal website, uh, uh, jordanstrength.com. Um, I've got online education opportunities that I provide coaches. Um, the, the, the one that's, um, that's most far along and developed right now is kind of a front to back, um, course that starts with the science of muscle strength and power works through, um, ideas of, uh, movement assessments and, um, you know, evaluating musculoskeletal competence. He's not like a therapist, but enough knowledge that coach could understand those, those worlds. And then a deeper dive into strength and powers testing and, and neuromuscular testing, um, as sort of a full kind of package about, um, how we might take an athlete in, assess them, evaluate them, uh, even looking at their asymmetries, um, you know, for the purpose of designing, uh, designing better programs. So uh, future things coming out, you know, program design course will come out, um, periodization course will come out, also a uh, co course on return to sport strength and conditioning for, for S&C coaches. And then, um, you know, uh, lastly will be um, a kind of a mentorship program, but those will be the kind of components of my online system. And so you can check that out. Follow me on Twitter at uh, Jordan Strength or on Instagram at Jordan Strength. And just keep uh, keep tabs, join my mailing list. It's uh, I, I send out information periodically there as well. So um, uh, I will certainly, um, give more information to anybody who wants it, but if you want that sort of information, just tune in on those, uh, those various access points. Awesome. Well, I just want to, you know, Matt and I have been friends for a number of years now and really enjoy each other's company when we get together, yeah. not, not frequently enough, but, uh, True, truly respect this guy. I think he's somebody you want to learn from. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, the stuff that he does. Uh, he let me audit that course uh, last year, and I was truly impressed. And, you know, people should take the time. If you really want to explore the corners of strength and conditioning at this at this time and, and understand the science uh, about it and what's really currently um, the way you should practice, I think following what Matt's doing is really huge. So... Sir, thank, thank you for taking an hour with us today. I'm glad you had a sunny day to sit out in the backyard and do it, and it's always great to see you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And um, uh, I saw Brian Hughes on the call too. Brian, I hope you're doing well. Sorry to give Brian a shout-out, but I haven't seen him in over a year and a half, I think it feels like, maybe even more. Um, but uh, hope you hope you're doing well. And Scotty and uh, Jamie, as always, I, I really uh, appreciate you and appreciate what you do and keep doing the great work. Love to collaborate with you guys and uh, love to have these opportunities. Um, so, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to giving you a big hug when I see you next. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a big bottle of wine uh, partitioned on that day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>